Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers. Great to have you with us. Tracy Slatten, and I am so sorry. Blog Talk Radio just disconnected itself from my computer. This is a new show, and I'm just still getting the kinks worked out. So I hope people are managing to find the show because it is airing. Um, And today, I'm so happy to welcome everyone to the second episode of the show. I created this show to to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to this show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. Please do call in with questions to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers. In the coming weeks, we have some great guests coming on, and I will get the kinks out, I promise. Next week on May 7th at 11 a.m. Eastern, we will have author and healer Dr. Jane Eli, and she'll be talking about energy medicine and eco-psychology, and she'll talk about her books, Coming into Balance and Remembering the Ancestral Soul. On May 14th, we'll have author and psychiatrist Dr. Bill Burnett talking about parental alienation. On May 21st, Peter Trippi, the editor-in-chief of Fine Art Connoisseur Magazine, will talk about supporting and curating the visual arts in today's competitive environment. So tune in. And keep checking the website, independentartistthinkers.com, and the Blog Talk Radio page, which is blogtalkradio.com slash independentartistthinkers, and check to see who will be on the show. So despite the late start, I am delighted today to have my husband, classical figurative sculptor Sabin Howard, on the show. Sabin is truly the archetype of the independent artist, and he's a lot of light to shine on the journey. Just in terms of his bio... Sabin Howard grew up in New York City and in Torino, Italy. He studied art at the Philadelphia College of Art and then earned his MFA from the New York Academy of Art. For 20, for 20 years, he taught at the graduate and undergraduate levels before leaving academia to work full-time on his sculptures. He has been elected to the board of the National Sculpture Society. He has received numerous commissions and has showed his work at more than 50 solo and group shows. After 45,000 hours of working from life models in the studio, Sabin is the creator of three heroic scale pieces. They're beautiful. 
Hermes, Aphrodite, and Apollo, as well as many smaller pieces. His works are owned by museums and private collectors all over the world and have been favorably reviewed by the New York Times, American Artist, Fine Arts Connoisseur, American Arts Collector, The New Criterion, as well as several foreign journals. So, Sabin, welcome to the show. Thanks for being on. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Sorry, we had those uh, technical difficulties. And um, I've interviewed you before, and I've asked you before how you became an artist, and we will circle around and hear that story again. But in the meantime, I want to go right into the journey of the independent artist. What makes you an independent artist, and why did you choose to become one? Um, There were a couple things here going on. Um, Independently, I'm creating something different than the mainstream art market, meaning I I don't want to say abstract art, but art that's more conceptual, more technically driven, like computer art, uh, performance art. And I'm making an art that is following a long-standing tradition that is about visual, visual arts. And that's, that's one element. The other element is that I'm not represented by agents, galleries, or um, anybody, and that I represent myself and deal directly with my clients and um, people that are interested in, in, in having something of what I do in their home. So those are the two key elements. It's a business element that's independent, and it's an artistic element is independent. Um, well, what are some of the challenges you face as an independent artist? Well, there, there are um, also two elements in this category as well. To make great art, it, it needs to be financed. If you look historically to the past and you see um, things like the Sistine Chapel or even something like Rockefeller Center, where you have a manship, the Atlas sculpture. These are great pieces of art, contemporary, modern pieces as well, as well as traditional pieces. They were always funded by patrons or uh, governments or churches. And that market has changed quite a bit. Um, And to make this kind of figurative art, you really need to be paying for the process of its creation. Um, For example, when I made Apollo, which is a life-size piece as a commission, um, that was three years of work with um, 3,400 hours of looking at one, or actually two life models over a period of two and a half years, actually. So I'm paying a model to create something because you can't really do this from a computer or a photographic image. It's... um, reaction to a human being that makes my art so human. Well, what does it take to make figurative art these days? Well, that, that's one of the first things. Is you need funding. You need to have a studio to be able to create your, your art. You need to be able to pay for the model. You need to be able to... I'm a sculptor, so I have to deal with um, boundary costs mold-making costs, and bronze-casting costs. So what has happened, not because I really wanted to, do, to, to take this road, but I, I realized about 10 years ago that being in galleries was not necessarily promoting my art the way that 
um, would support large projects or even projects in general. Um, and if you have a why family do, as well, why go do you ahead. say that? Why don't galleries? Why aren't galleries the way to go? Well, what happened was I I found that a gallery might have twenty artists in their stable, and then you might have a show every two years, and so the gallery would cycle its interest and its support of an artist, meaning contacting collectors and patrons for that specific artist on a sporadic um, level because their chief concern was to pay the rent and proceed with their business needs, which completely makes sense. And then you have um, another problem in that if you're splitting the cost of selling a piece of art down the middle at 50% for artists and 50% for gallery, that really... Um, makes it difficult for both parties. And then the other element is that the gallery is a business and they've really worked a long time to, to gather their um, clients and to create relationships with um, that part of the, the society that's actually spending money to buy art to put in their home. So it's a, it's a, it's a real job. And if you're only making 50% of the profits, it makes it even more difficult. And the artist at the same time has to pay for his own um, artistic process. So cutting a piece in half financially in the sale really makes it skimpy for um, both sides of the, um, the, 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 the party here. Uh, as an independent artist, in the last few years I've really learned how to deal with clients, how to create relationships with people, how to deal with the whole business aspect of having to say, this is how much this is worth. I would like to discuss this with you. It, it, this is, it, it's, I think, the wave of the future. Um, I think that artists will have to become independent and work using the Internet because the Internet is such a valuable resource in the aspect that you can photograph your work and you can put it on the internet and it can go into people's homes at at their leisure when they want to look at something. And at the same time, they don't have the pressure, the added pressure of having to meet with somebody. They can look at something and study it and decide if they want to contact the artist down the road and perhaps visit his studio or go buy a book on him or find out more about what he actually does. And it, it helps because it creates an educated consumer. The, art, the art, art collector will come to an artist oftentimes having looked at their work for a while and, and, have, and when they get, do get to your studio, they do make contact with you, they have a lot of questions that they want to ask you. So let me ask you, what are galleries doing that they shouldn't be doing? And what are galleries, what in an, what are galleries doing in an ideal world? What should the galleries be doing? I don't want to find fault with the galleries because, it, look, there it's a storefront and commercial rent is out, outrageous in um, cities like New York City. And so um, I can't find fault with them because they're, they're really just trying to run a business. And but you just it, said and, that you were just talking about the educating you know, art lovers. Shouldn't galleries be doing more to educate the public about what is good art? Yes, they should. Yeah, they absolutely should. But I think what gets in the way is that the costs of running that um, brick-and-mortar space have become astronomical, so they can't do what they want to do. 
And that really puts them in a bind, in a pinch, because when the rent comes around at the end of the month, every every month, it, it's like they've had to sell how many pieces of art to make to make that that amount. So they can't do what they should be doing, which is um, creating a relationship with you know artists that are well versed in what they do, professional, creating something of great beauty, and really that art that is. Um, distinguished apart from the the fold. It's extraordinary art. And there's a tremendous amount of extraordinary art being made. It's just that sometimes it doesn't get put in front of the public through a gallery system anymore. Well, what is the new system? What do you think is emerging out of the gallery system that isn't working? I think what's emerging is that a lot of artists are deciding to treat the money-making process as an artist on a much more entrepreneurial level in that they might create an atelier and become um, teachers as well with running their own school and at the same time um, taking on commissions and also selling smaller things like drawing. So you have several markets that the, the artist actually starts to learn how to maneuver in. It's, what? How do you maneuver in those markets? What have you done to get into those markets? Well, there are a couple things. I I started teaching on Skype. I started doing private anatomical teaching because I offer something to um, people that's very different than what's taught in schools or in books, much more about design. And also with my collectors, I... I'm constantly taking pictures of process to show how something evolves in the studio. And this, I think, is fascinating for people because um, it's almost as if a plant is growing and then flowering and germinating. And What about your website? What do you think is the role of the Internet? What is the role of the Internet in the new art world? Um, well, unfortunately, I think there's a couple – couple things here. Internet is a good introduction, but it, it steals the live interaction of looking at a piece of work, which is, it, it's it's the same in, with uh, live performances and listening to something on, you know, with, through your headset. You lose about, I, I'm not going to say percentage, but you lose a large percentage of the actual experience of that piece of art. So the internet is a great introduction. It might be a catalyst to get somebody to look at something or experience something, but it's it's the beginning. And then from there, it has to go into an actual experience of being physically present and looking visually with one's eyes at an object. Objects, especially like sculpture, change drastically under how they're illuminated in, in what space they're put in. Um, these are all aspects that you can't feel or sense through a flat screen. So you see the Internet like a website as an introduction. And then what's the next step for the artist to reach potential buyers, potential customers? Well, we, I want to remind people that art is made by people, by human beings, individual, uni- unique characters that have a history. And usually if they're really good at what they do, their personality and their perception of reality is filtered through in their creative process. So when you meet the artist and you speak to him and you see 
what he's gone through to create that piece of work, it, it resonates on such a higher level than looking at a flat image on a screen. It's made I, by I, human hand. It's a human... It's, a, it's, made by, it's made by hand. That is what is so important. That's what the Internet does not show as well. So let so me go back. I, Since you brought up the human element of art, um, let me ask you some personal questions. When were you first exposed to art, and how did art come into your life? I was exposed to art at a very early age because I, I grew up in Europe, in Italy. And Italy is visually created. I, I want to explain this. Things are not just... Um, plumped and you know slapped together in Italy, especially 40 years ago. Things were constructed with attention to proportion, attention to how all the parts fit together hierarchically to create a whole. And I'm talking here about even apartment buildings, um, lobbies, uh, doorways when you entered uh, your apartment, um, the, the stairways, the lighting, the, the chandeliers, um, the columns in the lobby. These are all visually visually artistic things that you experience viscerally that had an effect on you. And then, you know, terminology-wise, designers use the term feng shui. Italy is, was the epitome of feng shui um, in the 1800s in the, and prior to that and how things were built and put together. And you had other elements, too, in terms of when you sat at the table and you you ate your meal in the kitchen. It, there's all these elements of, of so you energetic were first exposed, feeling. You were first exposed to birth, art in Italy. From birth. Yeah. From birth yeah, in from Italy. Birth. And when was, yeah. I know from living with you that Michelangelo is one of your great inspirations. So when is the first time, do you remember the first time you saw a Michelangelo sculpture or painting? Well, the first time that I saw uh, Michelangelo and I actually had a visceral experience was I was probably around 14, highly rebellious. Um, and it was at the Medici tomb. And I know people that have seen that tomb. You have a cupola. And from that cupola, light streams from above. And it illuminates um, the Medici, uh, Giuliano and Lorenzo de Medici, um, their sculptures. And then the representations of night and day and dawn and dusk. And these are all set within um, amazing architecture. So, and then there's, there are several other pieces, but the thing that I want to stress here is even somebody who was not, well, interested in, I was interested in, you can imagine 14-year-old boy interested in football, um, skateboards, biking, things like that. And you go into a place like that, it, it, it has an, a, an extreme effect on you. And uh, that was the germination of the seed. It was like, well, I'd, I'd like to make this kind of art. I'd like to make figurative art. I can do woodworking. Perhaps I could try to make something like the, these figures. And so when I got to art school, I, I, I really directed myself towards, towards teachers that could give me that information. Well, tell me about the opposition you encountered. I know that in art school you encountered both opposition and support for doing classical figurative art. Tell me about that. I went to Philadelphia College of Art, and it was not that I, I decided oh, I'm going to go to that school because it was, it was more that I 
landed in Philadelphia, and I walked over to that school because I knew it was an art school, and it turned out to be the only place in the whole country where I could learn this methodology for putting together a figure that followed in the tradition or the footsteps of the Renaissance or the Greco-Roman tradition of and the Leonardo tradition of a seven and a half monumental classical figure. I learned from this couple, the Erlbachers, and there were other teachers too, the Tony Visco as well, and Harvey Citron. And I had an amazing education at 20 years of age, starting at 20 years of age, where that's all I did every day. And it, thinking back, it's, it, it just doesn't even exist today, what I learned. What what was the most important thing you learned about the figure when you were a student? The most important aspect was how important the figure is. It's it, 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 it's a representation of us. So in my mind, I was looking back at the Michelangelo pieces, the sculptures, and thinking, wow, those really make me feel unbelievable when I look at them. I want to make that kind of art. So that was always in the back of my mind as the template for the direction of how I should translate the life model into art. That was the most important thing. It learned a methodology for translating that. And I, I want to say something about what makes Michelangelo so special and still such a contemporary in, uh, in, in this in this modern world? Still, because this is yeah. Why is why is Michelangelo still relevant? Because his sculptures are not about figures so much. They are more about the energy that the core has. It's and that energy that the core holds is the breath or the soul of the individual. It's the power that drives us forward. It's an intangible that science cannot find or, or label. But his sculptures develop the life force energy or the breath through how the anatomy was put together. And a lot of that has to do with two elements. It's how all the parts fit together in the whole hierarchically. And the other part is about light. It's about how when light hits form, how it becomes expansive visually and how it looks luminous. And those are two things that are still extremely relevant about human beings, that we are energetic, luminous beings and that we carry a soul or a life force energy within us. Now, I'm not saying that we should be doing the same sort of figures that Michelangelo did, but what his well, well, who figures were about... What who besides Michelangelo were your inspirations? Um, was very influenced back in 86 and 87 when I traveled back to Rome and I, I studied with Paolo Carasone, a Roman, and I looked at the Roman sculptures and I saw how modern they still were, how timeless they still were, because they had an, an, an ascetic quality that lacked the really decorative element that some of the art that followed, like, well, let's go to the far extreme, the Rococo art. But his the, the Roman 
sculpture so you're talk- and hel- you're talking Hellenistic about, like, art that I saw in Italy. Yeah. Like in the Vatican, when we go, there's that hall with all the Roman busts. Yeah. Yes. And the the bronzes in Riace, those are amazing because they're human and they carry an energy within them that is is it's timeless because that energy is not. It, we're still the same. We're, we're still people. We still screw. We still eat. We still breathe. We still walk. That's the part that's absurd when people say, oh, that was done before. That is the most bullshit answer that you could possibly give, and it shows such ignorance and arrogance because it's more out of not knowing, not knowing, not looking, actually, at the art of the past and seeing that it's a tradition that should not be cut off and thrown away. Well, but so who else besides the Romans and their busts and Michelangelo? Who else do what other like Carpo, Canova, Rodin? Who do you like? Who who has an influence well, on Saban Howard? It, I, I like very much the Mannerist painters at certain points. And it, look, I, it's not that I go to one direct place all the time and look at that because as an artist, you're constantly evolving and changing. So your influences and what you like is constantly evolving and changing. So you don't eat the same thing every night. You ch- your tastes change. And as a human being, they change. So um, as my art moves forward and I try different things, I look at different artists and I'm influenced from different places. But the one thing that's always stayed constant is that I I love figurative art that is most abstract. That is art that is, comes from a creative source of, of the artist's perception of reality. And by that I mean, let's, let's make it very simple. Uh, if you look at Leonardo paintings, Leonardo paintings are about uh, structure, um, completeness, how light hits form, and the sense of, of orderliness of the universe. Well, and but, psychology, his pieces, uh, yes. you know, his paintings show the psychology of the subject and the beautiful perspective. But it's, it's applauding the amazing quality of how the the universe is divi- divine in its design and how it's it's what wondrous how things have been assembled in in life and then that that influenced his art to take those elements of how it's put together in the real world and translate it into the art world and in so doing it elevates the art and it represents not only the high standard that human beings are and can be, but it's also like a, a eulogy or it's a, a praise of how the world is assembled. And that's the type of art that has always intrigued me. So if, well, if, how- if you want to look, I, I don't want to say contemporaries. I'm fascinated by some of Calder's mobile. I'm fascinated by Juan Miro, the abstract Spanish painter. I'm fascinated obviously by Leonardo, Michelangelo, less so by Raphael, but it's interesting. It's all about the design qualities of how things are assembled, and it's a translation from reality. And I'm less interested in actually photorealism because photorealism, in a way, it's mimicking a screen. It's mimicking a photograph, and that's already a lower form of of perception because it's gone through one filter. So it's art copied from other art. It's not art taken you, from nature. You and I were at that at a panel symposium where the great Burton Silverman talked about the artist's personal human vision. Yeah. Well, that's the design system. That's that's the human vision that when you look at nature, 
It filters through the artist's mind and it gets translated into his way of seeing form. And if you have an artist that has a high level or a high degree of mastery technically, one, and then a high degree of actually looking and seeing and studying, that's two. So you have two elements. Technique has to be a given. Just you got to study it and get it behind you, and then the door opens. And then it starts because it's it's how you you shift the real world into the art world, and um, that's the type of art that I'm really attracted to. Well, how do you push yourself to grow as an artist? I have no choice. I have no choice because this is how I support myself and my family. There's no time to like just lower the bar and say, okay, I'm going to do the same piece as I did last year. You know, everything has to go to the next level because it, it, making my art depends on if my clients are going to appreciate it. But I don't do things to please my clients. I do things that I know will be the next step in my progression. And my clients, in so seeing the honesty of what I do and the integrity, are fascinated by the excellence that I bring to my work. Well, and where do you see your work evolving to? Will you share with us something about your future plans? And Yes, yes. Um, I see my work evolving into multi-figure composition. And I see the element of drapery being interjected in the figure because drapery adds an additional element of how the, the, the muscles spiral through the figure like a DNA helix. Drapery will add to that. I've done a few drawings, started drawing again last year after a 15-year hiatus, and I remembered how expedient drawing is and also how marvelous it is in that you can cre- create and design things with so quickly, and it takes you to such a level of sharpness, of focus, that it, it just grows your intellect and educate you as an artist. So I I made a mistake. I stopped drawing for many years because I was feeling, okay, I need to master the art of sculpture. Well, I feel like I've, I've done that, and I'm going back to drawing now to help design my sculpture. That's the next step, where the drawing so you, and the sculpture see, are intermeshed in the creative so you, process. You see drawing and sculpting as reinforcing each other to progress your own body of work. Yes, the sculpture is three-dimensional drawing. That's how I make my figures. I draw on the clay three-dimensionally, taking lines with my tools that move similarly to how muscles uh, move from their origin to insertion, which is always not longitudinally, but on a spiral in relation to the skeleton. And that's something that drawing teaches you and these last two figures that I've done, these two um, female figures, these they're small 20-inch figures, are a direct reaction to drawing for the last nine months. And they're probably, I've stepped to another level with them. Their proportions are better, their design is better, they're more active, they're less um, static than what I have done in the previous, previous um, five years. Well, can you provide more detail about your technique as a sculptor? It's not. It, I can, but it's really not about that because the technique is is something okay. that is Hold about. On, it, it's, 
I think we have a, a caller. All right, Hi, caller two nine two seven nine three four. Would you like to say something? <laughs> yes. Hi, this is David Tornavena. How are you? Sorry to interrupt. Hi, David. That's okay. Do you have a David, question? Um, hey. So uh, first, I just wanted to uh, thank Tracy for doing the show because I just think it's so great and important to have this. Uh, but I, well, I you. when I heard. Oh, you're welcome. When I when I uh, saw that Saban was going to be on, I was brimming with questions, and many many of which you've already answered. Uh, oh, good. But good. yeah, um, and I loved the way you described you know the light and the luminosity and how that that affected you. Um, Thank you. I have I have a nine year old, mm-hmm. and when you mentioned your um, your drawing, it reminded me that I showed it to him a little while back. Uh, mm-hmm. digitally. Yeah, I think you had posted it, and so I was showing it to him, and he was kind of wowing over each of the drawings. <laughs> and and so, you you know, you, you've inspired me to, to really get him out to see things physically, like at museums, and I, I know I am, I am going to take him to Italy at some point. Wow. But I just thought um, may, maybe you could... Um, Give some advice on, you know, getting a nine-year-old who's so digitally connected, like all his friends are, um, you know, in- interested and able to see this great, you know, light and luminosity and physical work. Yeah, I, I can answer that. Um, I have a ten-year-old, so I, I can speak from, you know, living it. <laughs> uh, um, I, I, Tracy and I um, decided with our daughter few years ago that we would limit her use of um, screens and digital computers. And what happened was, okay, first she bitched and moaned, but after literally two, three days, she replaced that with reading. And what happened is that the reading um, did several things. It created a greater sense of calmness within her. It also made her brain become more imaginative in some ways because I think that's what reading does. It creates a different universe within your head and it shows you the possibilities that just a screen doesn't do. Now, I'm not saying that screens are terribly bad at all, but I do think that we're doing something to our our younger generation here that um, might be irreversible down the road in terms of how their their synapses are firing and how they... perceive their reality. And I can tell you that as a child, I didn't have it so easy where I could watch TV and just uh, relax. I, my parents were basically academics. And they say, oh, go deal with yourself. Go do whatever you're going to do. So I was left to my own accords, and I would spend long hours in my room building these, like, plastic models. And, you know, that, back in those days, they had tester cement, and that stuff got you high as a kite. I didn't know that, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, I was building these plastic models, and that was really the beginning of realizing about structure and how things are put together and and seeing the three-dimensionality of how the world is constructed. So I think parents what have about to make drawing? certain choices. How do you yeah, get, I, like, I, how did you I, get I Madeline to start drawing? I just... I, I said, we're going to do this this morning, and I, we got a book, and we copied a drawing, and I showed her how it's very mathematical in some ways in terms of using dots and straight lines and locating yourself spatially on a page, because anybody can draw. I'm not saying anybody can draw 
brilliantly, but anybody can draw. It's no different than eating. It's, um, no, it should I, be can, inclu- I can do including. stick figures. Right, of course. But if somebody taught you, <laughs> you could do it. And if you were brought, if this was brought back into the school system, it would be amazing at how effective it would be with dealing with certain elements such as ADHD and also um, just the lack of, of focus that kids have. Drawing is an amazing skill, but unfortunately, and I, I don't mean to be like, uh, gloom and doom here. It's just not there anymore because it got take it got taken out of the art world. It got taken, and that that kind of comes full circle to like, why am I an independent artist? Because I had to. I had no choice. I couldn't I just, do. I want to say something to David. I want to say something, David, yeah. about about kids and art. One of the things that we've done with Madeline that's been effective for getting her interested in art. Um, besides the fact that her dad literally talks about it all the time, as you might be able to tell. <laughs> when we go to a museum, we do a treasure hunt. So our first stop is to the museum gift shop, and we buy a couple of cards, uh, like postcards, and they're cheap. They're like a buck or something or $2, and some of them are a little more pricey. But she gets to buy three or four of those postcards that have images from inside the museum. Then we go look through the museum for what's on her postcards. And so it becomes a treasure hunt. She has a lot of fun with that, and you know, especially when she was younger. Oh, very younger, cool! Yeah, that was that. We're was going to the Brooklyn Museum Saturday. Yeah. So first oh, stop is that's an awesome shop. idea. Get him, let okay. him pick out five, and then it's a treasure hunt. Where are they in the museum? And then, you know, when he gets all five, I don't know, you could buy him an ice cream later, or give him a coloring book or something. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for the I call. I love that idea, Appreciate and thank it. you for the model idea. I think that's a great thing, too, to take him off the uh, digital and do like a model. Yeah. Well, him. he's going to complain for a couple of days. That's, you know, you heard that part, right? Well, he's kind of a, he's kind of a master of Lego, so maybe he'll maybe it'll be a kind of a transition yeah. for him. But yeah, thank Legos you so much. I, I don't want to take too much time because I, I love uh, just everything you're sharing today. Thank you. I appreciate you calling, and thank you very much. Oh, sure thing. Okay, so Sabin, you that was nice that David called in. I love when callers call in, and the guest call in is 516-453-6052. And Sabin, you were just starting to talk about you had to become an independent artist. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, um, I, I was really lucky because I when I came out of the box in terms of like deciding I was going to become an artist, I was 19, and it, and I was in the right place at the right time, got the right teachers, and my education was like the best that I could get at that moment. I had nothing to erase. I didn't know how to do it. I got the right way to do it, how to to, to look at things perceptually. I got the education in how to make art. So I was. That's. I want to say that first of all. So that, that was, I'm very lucky to receive that. And I, at this moment it's starting to creep back in because the art schools are taking on too many things and not focusing enough on the actual meat and potatoes of an artistic degree. So what's happening is you have all this technology that are being taught on computers, which is fine, but then there's not a focus on design, which is still human. There's a connection that happens in the creative process, in drawing, between the, the brain and the hand and the pencil or pen and how you 
perceive, because I'm not saying eyes, it's the brain that perceives. The eyes let the light in, the brain is how it perceives our, your reality, and that's being taken away. It, 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 out of the education system, it's being cut. So what happened was you have a lot of, I'm going to say young, they're not so young, some of them, but younger artists that wanted to learn how to make realist, or I'm not going to say classical, realist art, mostly painters. There are not many sculptors out there. And they started their own schools. For example, Jacob Collins, years back, I think it's 15 years ago, he started a Water Street Atelier. Well, all those students that passed through his school that wanted to learn in a, in a, I guess, a realist French academic style about how to paint light, especially the figure on canvas, have now created their own separate schools across the country. So, so there's this mini revolution going on. Yeah. What you're saying is because ateliers have sprung up all over the place. Are they taking business away from the art schools, do you think? I don't think so. I think that the art schools are geared towards running people into, um, I'm going to guess, office jobs because those jobs deal with um, more technical, computer-savvy um, people. And what what these schools are doing is they're, this is a niche, how to paint in a traditional style. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people can't afford models because it's it's expensive when you want to do something that takes a long time. And so they've reverted to um, the computer monitor or the screen. And like I was saying in the beginning of this interview, you don't get the same um, reality, the three-dimensional quality of how when light hits um, the human form, how it turns. And the, obviously a human figure moves, breathes, we breathe, we have energy. Um, this great sense of expansion that you don't get on a screen. And that feeds the artist's perception. So, so how, do you, how do you convey that in a sculpture? In a sculpture, when I am in process from the beginning to the end, I take a metal tool and I draw onto clay. I diagram, which is basically a mapping out of the surface. And in that mapping out of the surface, I label in my head what I'm diagramming exactly what that form projecting out into space is. Then there are all these systems of how things are constructed in the figure. For example, the skeleton is the architecture of the figure and the muscles are the organic spiral element of the figure. So there are systems of how when you get to a joint, there are transitions um, of how you move through a joint and their separation of parts and how important those parts are, meaning how quickly they turn away from the light. And then if you're turning away from the light, the part might get darker. Or if you're turning towards the light, like the sternum, if it's pitched up towards the light, it's going to receive more light, more luminosity. So these are all things that I learned in my education in Italy and in my education here with the Erlbachers and Tony Visco and um, Harvey Citron, and then I went back to the New York Academy for for a, a master's degree, and then I taught for 20 years, and then I spent itself 50,000 hours with models, and so it's 30 years of an obsessive, you know, maniacal drive to create an art that parallels the past but is contemporary. Well, 
Let's go back on this. What is the relevance of classical art and classical figurative art in today's world? And I I just want to, well, I I just want to say, yes, I want to confirm maniacal and obsessive. But anyway, so there are two types of art. You have two parts going on. You have flesh and then you have a cold, calculating, godlike quality. And the cold, calculating, godlike quality is the classical element. It's the serene, peaceful, let's say, Western Buddha-type sculpture that you see in Canova. It can be dead. And then you have the fleshy, um, full, rounded, squishy form. It's more like Bernini in the Baroque, the drama of being human. So, you have so why to, is this you, relevant you look. Now? Why is it relevant now? Because those are two parts of human beings that will always exist. We're always going to be, let's call it Apollonian, which is the cerebral intellectual aspect. And then what's the other part, which is the Dionysian, the Dionysian which is the drunk, sloppy, you know, God, which is the fleshy ecstatic. human side, the, the ecstatic, ecstatic part, the emotional part, the emotional part. So one is emotional, one is cerebral. That's what we are. That's what we are. That's so why that's, it's relevant. That's just as relevant and, today as when the Riachi bronzes were made, as when Donatello did yes. his David, as when yes. Michelangelo did the Pieta. Yes. So, you, so do you if think, you say, mm-hmm. is classicism a political statement? And if so, what is that statement? It can be. It certainly was used... Um, by people like Hitler with the Foro, Foro, F-O-R-O, Romano in in Rome, Mussolini, where um, they sculpted these massive, um, ugly, um, static classical figures around the, the forum to show their power. Sculpture and art is at that, at, at, at that scale, large figurative, and is about power, it's about potentiality. It can be used that way, but it can also be used as it is today in a very interesting way that's never been done before. So you look at art traditionally, you go all the way back to the Hellenistic time, and that's, we're similar in that period to, to, to what went, went on then, in that it served human beings. It showed the potentiality of human beings, not through a religious way or a political way, but through their actual aspect of being. They are statements of I am, of how powerful we can be as human beings and how divine we are because we mimic the universe. And that's where we stand today if you can make that type of art. So back to you personally in terms of making that kind of art, you're hailed as one of the foremost classical figurative sculptors in the world. Um, What does that mean to you? Is that limiting? And what about your recent abstract art? uh, I don't pay attention to it. It doesn't really matter. It really makes not a difference, you know, how much fame or whatever you get. It's really about just making the art and sharing it with people because the art's about, it's it's to be shared. It's not to be saved in my studio. It's in service of community. That's what it's about. So I, I, I did make some mobiles last year. The abstract quality of them fascinated me because that spiral nature that I saw that was that I could put into that mobile. It's very fast to get there compared to a figure. Well, they're very beautiful. I think your abstract Thank mobiles you. are gorgeous. Well, we're coming up on two o'clock, so 
Should we just a few more minutes. Um, okay. Just for in terms of the unusual journey, what advice would you give to young artists just setting out? Oh God. Because <laughs> uh, part um, of this, part of the purpose for this. Uh, for this radio show is to give people models, to give people suggestions and models for how they can live outside the box or think outside okay. the box. Okay. Okay. Find a teacher that you really admire and learn what you as much as you can from that person. And I don't know about getting an art degree because an art degree, it's like, do you want to teach? That's what the art degree really comes down to at the end of the day. But these ateliers are really pretty interesting places because you, you're surrounded by other people that are as passionate as you. You're in a community, and you can live under the radar in them because it's, they're, you know it's, they're not as expensive as art school. So I think that's the way to go. You, would you need guidance. To, you need a you mentor. Su- you, so you would suggest to someone interested, a young person interested in an art career, or a person... Yeah you know, in the middle of their life who's making a change. You would suggest for them to find an atelier? Yes, and there's one other thing that's more business-oriented. Get an iPhone and take the best images that you can of your work and then always show people your work because people aren't going to know what you do unless you show them. And don't be shy about what you do. Don't say, okay, I'll do this when I make the next piece and I'm ready. You're always going to be at, I'll I'll do this when I show the next piece. you got to just go. And being an artist takes tremendous courage. It, it, it's not a profession for the meek or those that are looking for safety. And at the end of the day, we all die anyway, so you might as well just go for it. That's my opinion. Well, um, la- uh, two weeks ago with my first show, I talked with dancer and artistic director Lori Bellalove of the Isidore Duncan Dance, Dance Company Foundation, and we talked about how artists work for 20 years before becoming an overnight success. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it's well, um, kind of like the way it is. It's like until you get your skills down and, and you've created something that's just miraculous, it's like not many people are going to pay attention. And, and, and that attention is financial at the end of the day because you need finances to keep you in the studio. And that really, I, I don't. Want, I want to repeat that. You need finances to keep you in the studio. You cannot make art unless you have the liberty of being in your studio. So you have to set up your life in a way that you can stay in your studio and continue to move towards your passion. So um, before we go, Sabin, do you want to share with us where listeners can find out more about you and about your work? Yeah, you can. If you... Um, you know my website com. but if you want to contact me well, you, can, also, a, you can contact you me there's an blog. email there there's a blog the Sabin Howard Sculptures at blogspot.com but if you google me you'll find this stuff you just google me and you'll find my name and I make myself relatively accessible to people because it's about sharing with people it's not about like being private and quiet and hiding in your corner and doing your thing. So I don't do that. And that's maybe one of the reasons why I decided I can't deal with the gallery thing and I'm just going to do it on my own because I'd rather deal with people. I'd rather bring them into my studio and share my art with them. Hopefully they'll decide to take the next step and bring that art home into their 
into their home, bring the art home. And when they do that, that's the highest compliment that you can pay an artist because you're basically, you're living with the artist, at least his energy, because of the art that he's created because it comes from his mind and his hands. And you also are the co-author with me of the book, The Art of Life. I am. Yes, and we're going to do a new book on drawing now. And um, Tracy and I are um, really very excited about this book because it's a, it's a step more in a, in, into the actual design, the element of what's behind the sculpture, how it's put together, how abstract it really is. So any last bits of wisdom you'd care to share with us? Um no, just I got to get back on the model. <laughs> it's 204, and I want to go back and sculpt. But I have to say, I really enjoy sharing my thoughts with you, and I hope people take this to heart. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Sabin. You've been wonderful, and I thank would you. like to encourage listeners to go to sabinhoward.com to view your art, and that's s-a-b-i-n-h-o-w-a-r-d.com. I know you have a bunch of other websites, too, because I've built them for you. So um, thank you so much for being our second guest on Independent Artists and Thinkers, and it was wonderful to have you on. You were a terrific guest. Thank you. See you later tonight. Bye. (laughs) So to everyone who's listening, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so very sorry for our technical difficulties at the beginning. Um, I'm just ironing out all the kinks in this show. Please come back next week. We have Dr. Jane Eli. She'll be talking about energy medicine and eco-psychology and about her wonderful book, Coming into Balance, A Guide for Activating Your True Potential. And that's next Thursday, May 7th. That's 11 p.m. Eastern Time, so a little earlier. The week after that, we have Dr. Bill Burnett, who's a psychiatrist and a researcher, and he'll be on to talk about his work with parental alienation and sort of the things he's discovered in researching it. That's May 14th at 1 p.m. And the week after that, on May 21st, we have Peter Trippi, who's the editor-in-chief of Fine Art Connoisseur Magazine and a curator, and he has a just a long, wonderful bio of things he's done in the art world as an editor and a curator and a supporter of artists. So I think he'll have a lot to talk about, a lot to say about how to support the visual arts. So thank you to everyone who's been listening. I really appreciate Please email me or um, get in touch with me with suggestions or questions or anything else. Thanks again. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.